This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62, and you'll find that on page 1040 of the Church Bibles. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Uh, As most of you are aware, this is the fifth sermon in this uh, concentrated part of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9. And uh, we're looking now at um, uh, verses 51 to 56 but in its wider context. Uh, The series is under the one big heading, and that is the fear of commitment. Uh, That's not only uh, the fear of commitment in terms of following Jesus Christ closely. Many areas of our lives, there's a fear of commitment in terms of work and finance and relationship and various other things. The subheading for this morning is afraid of making mistakes. And one of the things that is manifestly obvious in the series so far is that the disciples have made a series of massive blunders, mistakes that are quite extraordinary. And Jesus has challenged them. You've had this interface. And indeed, this reading here is not the perceived gentle saviour that people think of, but 
robust and challenging and disturbing. So throughout Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been working with, relating to, the twelve disciples. And we've seen how constantly, even though they are making these mistakes, mistakes in terms of the way they think, and it's no less so true of us, Lord, who's the greatest? It's the way people think. Who's the top dog? Who's number one? Or in how they relate to each other in terms of perhaps the three, Peter, James, and John, uh, are the ace disciples. The others are just ordinary disciples. There are some churches that encourage this mentality. You're a born-again Christian. You're a a real spirit-filled Christian. And they have these gradations and so on. And that was prevalent with the disciples. And sadly, we know only too well, and this is the heart of the sermon. It's a very simple thing, but profound if we take it seriously, and it's this. We know only too well that it's possible to be a follower of Jesus and yet to hold back from being a disciple. Uh, That'll come much more next week. You see three times this idea, we will follow you, we will follow you. And there are certain things, the cutting edge of what that means, where people hold back. And it seems, ooh, Jesus is a bit harsh there. It may be from our experience thus far, he is harsh. It's uh, a bridge too far. There's the sentence then. That's the heart of what we're trying to do this morning. It's possible we know only too well, I know only too well, to be a follower of Jesus and yet not be a disciple. Now, we have one vital cross-reference. I'd like you to turn to Luke's Gospel, just to illustrate this, in terms of um, making mistakes. Luke chapter 22, verse 54. The account is that Jesus has been betrayed, and uh, Peter is observing the trial, as it seems. That's the context. Jesus is arrested, verse 47, and now in verse uh, 54, just this one verse, and I want, there's a play on words here, and I want you to focus on that. What we are saying then is this, that it is very possible to be a follower of Jesus and not to be his disciple in terms of what it's cost. Right then. They seized Jesus, led him away, and took him into the house of the high priest. There's the sentence. In its context, Peter followed at a distance. Safe following of Jesus. Peter followed at a distance. Let me apply that. You're a follower of Jesus, but sometimes in different situations, he is at arm's length. There are the the, the no-go area for his lordship. He is Lord, but not there, or not now, or not yet. We all know about that. It's possible to be a follower of Jesus and yet not to be his disciple. And it is surely, let's look at this collectively for a moment, it is surely the supreme handicap of the church of the 21st century that there are so many distant followers 
of Jesus. And so few disciples of Jesus. That is a supreme failure of the evangelical church. There you are, I'll say it a third time, to emphasize it is possible to be a follower of Jesus and yet not to be his disciple. To follow at a distance. Now, many people have relationships like that. They don't get involved. They keep people at arm's length or they draw a circle around their family and they say, me, me and mine, nothing else. You get involved with people and it can often be a disappointing and a messy business. So what are the essentials that Jesus highlights? Well, already we have seen in Luke 9.23, the essentials are uncompromising as they impinge upon our lives. We to deny self. I was reminded uh, recently of um, a sermon that I preached and I said that I borrowed it when I, when, uh, at the graduation a very long time ago in Glasgow when we were students famous preacher, some of you might have heard of, Alan Redpath was preaching. And the characteristic of him was to give three points. And he gave the first point that he says, you know, you young men and women, you're going out into this world, you face lots of temptations and so on and so forth. And he said, I want to say three things to you. The first is this, you're young and your sexual drive is powerful. Control yourself. And then he said, you are young and you're ambitious. Come to terms with the fact you're not going to earn a lot of money. Give up your silver now and have done with it and don't complain. But if you think these are big deals, the next one is massive. Your biggest problem is yourself. Yourself. Those of us who have lived long enough know that. It's ourselves. And what does Jesus do as a first prerequisite to being a disciple, not so much being a follower at a distance, is look at yourself. Look at yourself and do something. Deny it. Oh, that's, a, that's something that you will spend the rest of your life doing and often, like me, failing. Nevertheless, that's it. Deny yourself. Oh, this term is an interesting word. It, it essentially says, look, no to self, yes to Jesus. There you are. We would teach that in the S Club to preschool children. Say no to self, yes to Jesus. In given situations in my life, in my home, with my family and work. And it's tough. And it's very easy, believe me, to preach on it and not easy to live out in our lives. We have another cross-reference again in Luke 22. Look at this. Just look in Luke 22 and this time verse 31. This is before, and it's in its context, Peter following Jesus at a distance. Before that, there's a big issue. Unseen, unknown. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And still didn't register. He follows Jesus 
at a distance. Our problem is this. Like all disciples who've gone before, there's the constant danger of doing the opposite of saying yes to what I want to do and no to what Jesus' legitimate claim on my life really is. We all know about that. The second thing is take up your cross daily. That's the rub. Daily. Daily. The cross is a symbol of death and ending. And what Jesus does is to reverse that. The cross is the beginning of life and purpose. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You have to believe that daily. Because the temptation to fudge is there all the time. All the time. Satan wants to have you, to sift you as we, to keep the rubbish and get rid of the, of the fruit. And our lives are bunged up with stuff that just holds us back. Take up your cross daily. And the third, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. You see, at the heart of this challenge, as Jesus is trying to sift these disciples, all of them jockeying for position, wanting to know who's the most important and all of that stuff. The heart of this is, 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 is the trust that Jesus actually knows what he's doing, knows where he's going. Genuine love, that there is no greater security in the world than his love. And rugged obedience. Rugged obedience. You say, will there be mistakes? For sure. Yes. For all of us. And perhaps too many. Perhaps too many. But you see, like with children setting out in life, through mistakes, they grow. And we, like our Lord's children, through mistakes, we grow. Pity the person who never makes a mistake. Chances are they never achieve anything either. So, growing, maturing, deepening, trust, love, obedience. And surely there is no substitute for this self-denial in the Christian life. It will be there all the time. Isn't it interesting we've been tracing... Peter here, we've got one final reference. Just turn to John's Gospel and uh, John 21. You'll remember this encounter uh, post-resurrection. John uh, 21 and verse 15. So we've seen um, Satan wanting to scupper the life of faith in Peter as a prospective leader. We've seen him compromising, half in, half out, keeping Jesus at a distance and so on. Now, it's the resurrection. It's the same disciple, the same follower, the same Jesus. Now, look at this interestingly, verse 15. Uh, 21 and verse 15. Yes, here we are. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus 
said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, care for my sheep. Third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt, and rightly so. Peter was hurt, because Jesus asked him, pressed him, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. But he's a fisherman. And often Jesus asks us to do things that we're not all naturally qualified for. Then you get to verse 19. Jesus said to him, said all this to him to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, back to square one again, follow me. You say, right, he's made it. But look at the nature and the character of this disciple. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked him, Lord, what about him? It's always one of the problems, isn't it? When we think we're trying to sort out our life, we get involved with other people's life. Now, look at the directness of Jesus. Jesus answered him, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. Now, the, the sheer frequency of that is astonishing. We'll make mistakes. You couldn't make many more than the Apostle Peter. Yet through that you grow and mature. One thing you can't do, it's a zero option, is to keep Jesus at a distance. This whole personal thing is a very powerful one. Let's think of the church for a moment. Think of how long it's see it grow and so on. Uh, next Sunday I'm... Uh, preaching in the church in Glasgow where Hannah and I, when we got married, we attended and we've kept contact and prayed and keep relationships going. And in their um, monthly magazine, there was uh, this article where the question began was, why did you start attending church? Why do people attend church? And um, the answers are quite revealing. Here's a list. Number one, well, not in any order, um, Percentage-wise, okay. Parish visitation, 1%. Church clubs and groups, 2% of people who started coming to church. Special situations, 3%. Children's work, 4 Publicity, 6 Ministerial contacts as pastoral visits, 7 Invitation by friends, 77%. If we want to follow Jesus, we can't follow him at a distance without making him known. And you know it's easy, it's almost a cop-out, isn't it? What we need is a new logo, a new building, a new vision. That sort, okay, of course it has its place, but it's no substitute for follow me, follow me, follow me. And that's the challenge for you, whatever else. Do not be a distant disciple, a disciple keeping Jesus at arm's length. You can't do that. Well, you can, of course, and sadly some of you do, but you know what I mean. You can't and you shouldn't because it doesn't produce anything. So back to Luke chapter 9. The checks and balance and the benefits of evaluating or appraising 
Some of you have annual appraisals. Hearing in the news this week, doctors are going to be appraised annually as to their competence and so on. Appraisals can be quite, uh, quite threatening, quite unnerving in many ways. That's what Jesus is doing, progressively evaluating here. So in verses 51 to 54, you have James and John have these blind spots about Samaritans. Well, they would know, wouldn't they? Why don't you do what Elijah did? Call fire from heaven and consume them. It's an obscure perspective, a prejudiced one. Do you remember the Samaritan woman? The disciples are horrified. How does she leave the well? Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? And the hardest thing Jesus had to do was to overcome the prejudice of the disciples. It is often said, it's a familiar quote, of course, that uh, mother, uh, or is it uh, necessity is the mother of invention. In this context, we could say evaluation is the mother of improvement. Are we sitting here this morning and saying, I don't need to improve? I don't need to improve. I don't think you would. I hope not. If you do, have the courage to tell me. Think of the progress that is made throughout industry in computers, in cars, in in mobile phones, it's a, it's a society where constant improvement is being made. Think of evaluation of uh, relationships for a moment. The Lilies organized this um, marriage course, and we were the first some, uh, among some of you to step up to the place and say, yes, we're going to have some healthy evaluation. How do you make good relationships better? Or have we got it all sewn up? You see, for years, good marriages was defined as one in which there are no problems. That is just not true. How can you be human and not have problems? A good marriage is where the problems are dealt with and faced and you move on rather than living in mutual denial, which is a stalemate. Let's come to evaluating the role in Christian growth, in our maturity, in our discipleship. I think there are believers who've floundered for many years where there's no significant spiritual growth because of a lack of a kind of objectivity, of loving, biblical guidance necessary for improvement. Surely that is one of the great benefits of listening, I hope, to God's Word, to a sermon like this. And that's what Jesus is doing here. This evaluation, this Desire to look and improve and learn from our mistakes. Let's try to conclude. Left to the disciples, they would have circumvented Samaria altogether. But we read through one woman and one conversation with one Lord Jesus. The town come out to hear 
about this Messiah. What's this method then as we turn the spotlight on ourselves if we're willing? Just a few things as we conclude. The first is this. At least this is what Jesus seems to do. Choose your timing carefully. If you do relate to people, and I hope you do, choose your timing carefully. It's easy to jump to conclusions. It's easy to prejudge. See, Jesus knows only too well, evaluation is a powerful tool. If wielded improperly, people can be seriously hurt, and often they are. But when used properly, sensitively, it's an instrument for change and growth and transformation. Choose your timing carefully. This is particularly true in terms of young people. Giving reason for valuing and appraising. Secondly, stay objective. That's the one thing that you see with Jesus all the time. He deals with the issue, not simply with personality. Here's a subtle one, and particularly for parents, and it can be in church as well, and it's this. Don't let your love for a person cloud your objectivity. If you really love someone, and look, none of us would gainsay the love that Jesus had for his disciples. Look how he relates to them. Lastly, whatever we do, say it with love. You know, the Puritans, who are very much criticized people, went to the Newfoundland to, to America. People who were ejected from the Church of England. They were of the more um, artisan class of people, pilloried by the church because of their strong evangelical faith and so on. And they used to use illustrations that were the sort of um, common to man. And they used to say, as they worked with uh, hard wood, like English oak, for instance, and if you were to hit nails into oak, they weren't the nice polished ones that we have. They were rugged. They were made out of bits of iron, sharp and jagged. They say, what you have to do is dip them in grease, dip them in oil, now, here is a truth, a jagged truth, dipped in love, will go in easier and stay firmer. You see the point? That when we relate to each other, it isn't only what we say, but how we say it with a genuine concern that another person will grow. We wish them well, rather than want to put them down. We'll make mistakes. We should do. And in the process there is the transforming grace of God as he works with us and through us. 